So when it comes to greenhouse gases, we don't care about carbon equivalents. We care about the impact these gases have on actual warming. What's really almost miraculous is that if we address methane, if we reduce methane, then not just will we have less warming, but we will reduce warming. We will net reduce warming, and that means we can become part of a climate solution. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, situated at the nexus of ag productivity and environmental sustainability is the Clear Center at UC Davis. And they're focusing on environmental awareness and researching, addressing climate neutrality. And I've had as a guest before, and I'm happy to welcome back as a guest now, Dr. Frank Mitlerner. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Hi. I can't have you on enough. It just seems every time I've, I've had you on a podcast, I've had somebody say something to me and say, well, you know, I hadn't really thought of it that way. You're doing such great work yourself personally and all of the conversations you have, and you're kind enough to share them on podcasts like mine and others. I've I've recognized there's a lot of podcasts that you get on, and I appreciate your taking the time. And you have research, and you, you're involved in so many things. And one thing I want to talk about today, too, Frank, is that uh, even though we focused an awful lot on cattle and dairy in particular, that's not the only thing that the center addresses it too. So there's a there's a broader range. I'd like to start off, if you wouldn't mind, let me throw some things out. But when it comes to carbon neutrality, the term carbon neutrality, how do you explain that as far as how that applies to agriculture in general, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit more about some of the specifics of it. Yeah, so it quickly gets technical, okay? So first of all, much of the world talks about carbon carbon neutrality, but, uh, but I don't. Uh, carbon neutrality really refers more to the fossil fuel sector. The fossil fuel sector, meaning the sectors of society that, uh, or the sectors that burn oil, coal, and gas, uh, that could be transportation or power production and so on. Um, and their main greenhouse gas is CO2, carbon dioxide. And for them to not have an additional impact on climate, they need to go down to zero. Okay. So they have to stop burning fossil fuels in order to not add additional warming. On the livestock side, we do not have to achieve carbon neutrality because our main greenhouse gas is methane. And we do not have to get methane down to zero. We have to reduce methane in a meaningful way by 30 or so percent um, because methane has a different behavior as to how it warms the planet. So uh, ramping, you know, getting it down to zero is not needed, but a strong reduction is needed for us to not have additional impact on climate. So I do not rally the troops around carbon neutrality, but climate neutrality, because that's what it's really about, not having additional impacts on climate. When you talk about greenhouse gases, 
uh, we're talking about methane, carbon dioxide, and also nitrous oxide. Is it primarily the three primary greenhouse gases? That... Yes. And, and then there's much talk about methane being more serious, but I think if you've explained before, it doesn't last in the atmosphere as long as, as carbon does. Yeah, so the main greenhouse gas that humanity is uh, is attempting to tackle is CO2, carbon dioxide. Every time we burn oil, coal, or gas, we are taking carbon that was in the ground for millions of years in the form of oil, coal, and gas, and we are burning it. And by doing so, we are putting that carbon into the atmosphere. And every time the sun hits those carbon molecules, these carbon molecules store the heat from the sun. And the problem with CO2 carbon dioxide is that it has a lifespan of a thousand years. So pretty much once it's in the atmosphere, it stays there and warms the planet forever. So for us to reduce our impact on climate uh, really mainly deals with uh, limiting the amount of fossil fuel we burn and therefore CO2 emissions. Um, on the livestock side, as I said, the main greenhouse gas is methane and that gas lasts in the atmosphere for about a decade and then it's destroyed by another atmospheric molecule um, and that really changes the way it warms the planet methane is more powerful per molecule than co2 is almost 30 times more powerful but it has a very short lifespan again thousand years for co2 about a decade for methane and that really is a huge difference between because what that really means is that if we Consider that this gas methane is not just produced, but also destroyed. If we now reduce the amount of methane we produce, then that means that we are replenishing less than is naturally destroyed. And that means if we reduce methane, then not just does the methane concentration go down, but also the associated warming. We can reduce warming if we reduce methane. The same is not true for CO2. The same is not true for nitrous oxide. I don't think I've ever heard that before. I mean, we've talked before and I've heard you. Maybe I just wasn't listening as carefully as I should have, but I didn't. it didn't really sink in until what you just, just got finished saying. So it's different. Yeah, I really, I, want, I really want to re-emphasize that so that it's very clear to everybody. If we reduce methane, we reduce warming, and instantaneously so. And because of that, animal agriculture, when reducing methane, can be part of a climate solution. This is not some kind of greenwashing. This is hard science, hard physics. Reducing methane reduces warming. So now let's go back to livestock. You say animal agriculture, because people do, I think, understand the fact that we have uh, ruminant animals and the the ruminants and primarily people think of cattle but it's certainly sheep and goats and horses and you know, other things but there are are you know they in this process they virtually burp as their belch or something and and you're producing methane now how can how can you talk about livestock including like you know poultry and and pork for example because mm -hmm. they aren't ruminant animals so why do they get in the methane tent so in general um ruminants do produce methane as an unintended consequence of having the ability to digest cellulose 
Cellulose is the world's most abundant biomass. Nothing is more abundant than cellulose in the world. Okay, on two thirds of all agricultural land in the world, I repeat that on two thirds of all agricultural land in the world, the only thing that grows is cellulose-containing grasses and other pastures. And the only animals that can make use of that cellulose, these grasses and other pastures, other forages, are ruminants because of their microbes in the rumen. Um, and that's a beautiful thing because this thing, this whole process of photosynthesis, it's called, everybody knows that, is powered by the sun and it converts carbon molecules we can't use as humans into those that we can use, which are meat and milk. So uh, ruminants are capable of making use of something humans can't, which is cellulose, and they are converting it into food that we all appreciate, which is dairy products and, and meat products and so forth. Um, the unintended consequence, as I said, is that these microbes that make this happen produce methane gas, and that methane gas builds up in the rumen in this very large stomach compartment and is belched out. Now, monogastric animals such as poultry and pigs, obviously, uh, don't have that process, but um, they still excrete, uh, excrete their manure. And once that manure is stored under oxygen-deprived conditions, we call those anaerobic conditions, the same thing happens in that manure storage that also happens in the rumen of ruminants, cool. namely... Well, that's great. Uh, you're, again, this is an, another light bulb went off, which is when you explained that. Because <laughs> now I can start looking at lagoons on a pork operation like I was right. looking at a cow stomach. Yeah, that's the same thing. You have two things. You have roughage or fiber uh, on the one side, and you have anaerobic conditions, oxygen-deprived conditions. And that favors the production of these methane-forming microbes called methanogens. The scientific um, term is archaea. And these uh, methanogens produce methane gas every time they are, um, they are provided with fiber or roughage uh, under these anaerobic conditions. And so uh, anaerobic storages such as lagoons produce methane just like a rumen does. So when we talk about um, lagoons, for for example, uh, for most people uh, might not envision this, but for a long time in hog operations, they use cement floors, concrete floors, and then they have to scrape them off and they would sometimes scrape them into a, a pond, a holding pond of some sort, and that would be uh, a lagoon. And then later we started putting them on slaughtered floors so that, so that the waste could fall through the slats into something underneath the, these buildings and go out into into these uh, these areas. Now, I want to follow up on that, but I want to ask a little bit about chickens, though. So in the case of uh, chickens, there's more and more of them are even pasture raised. Is there, is there still a factor of methane production when you've got poultry that are out in, in pastures? No, because that manure is not stored under anaerobic conditions. Okay, okay. If animals if animals are pasture raised, then that uh, manure dropping or the manure that falls off the animal uh, is not subjected to anaerobic fermentation or digestion, but to aerobic. Okay. And so uh, the the microbes that would um, 
digest those uh, manure patches would be aerobic and convert that methane into CO2 rather than, sorry, the carbon into CO2 rather than into methane. The anaerobic is without oxygen. Yes. It goes into these holding. Now, are there any poultry production systems that actually use lagoons? Uh, because I don't yes. think of them that way. Yes, there are. Um, in the past, lagoons were actually predominant um, for, let's say, laying hens. Um, but today, I would say solid storage is more prevalent. Uh, lagoon storage is less prevalent, but it used to be. It used to be the the number one form of storage of poultry manure. Today, it's more dried and composted and then land applied. And compost is the opposite of digestion. While digestion is an anaerobic process, composting is an aerobic process. And composting does not lend itself to the formation of methane. That's a pretty healthy I, practice then. It It is. Before before we move on from there, I just want to also emphasize this. While the mass media is focusing on methane and methane from animal agriculture and limiting it, I want to bring your attention to the fact that methane is nothing other than a very important utility. One that is of great value if you manage this methane correctly. Methane is nothing other than the natural gas that you use at home to cook or that you use at home to warm your house. Um, that is methane. Okay, Methane is energy. Um, and we don't think of natural gas that we use in our home as a, as a dangerous pollutant or so. Right. Um, we would only consider it a pollutant if it were to just off-gas without being converted into heat uh, when you cook or warm your house. So the same is true in animal agriculture. If we take that methane, and instead of just off-gassing it into the atmosphere, we convert it into transportation fuels, like we do here in California in our dairies, um, where we take the biogas from the lagoons, we convert it into renewable natural gas, which then power large vehicle fleets. Um, then that methane is no longer a problem, a liability, but it's now an asset. And in fact, such an asset that our dairy industry in California has already achieved a third of its methane goal by converting what was a liability into a utility, into an asset. So please don't think methane equals something bad. Methane yeah. equals a pollutant. It's only a pollutant if we don't manage it. If we do manage it, it can be the opposite. Well, unless you could put a big balloon on the face of a cow or something to capture it, that methane's going, whatever methane is going out, that's going into the atmosphere. Whereas the, the methane from a dairy cow that's going into the lagoon can be captured so that the methane... What what percentage of the of the methane would be that that just goes into the air from the cows belching and so forth versus the the amount of methane that can be captured in a lagoon? So on the dairy and on the beef side, the majority goes off via belching. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say uh, north of sixty percent. Okay, six zero. But that unwanted methane loss 
could be partially avoided. For mm -hmm. example, we can now breed for low methane animals. Uh, on the dairy side, there's now a test that helps the dairy farmer find out which animals are high methane producers and which are low methane producers. And then you can select for those animals that are low methane producers. That will reduce 30% of methane. Then there are other methods, for example, feed additives that you can feed to bovines in order to reduce enteric methane. Another way of reducing methane is the use of a bolus, a capsule that you put into the rumen of those animals that slowly releases a anti-methane agent. And last not least, there are now scientists developing a methane vaccine. So you give a shot to an animal and it reduces lifetime methane emissions uh, from the enteric side of things. And on the manure side, what we really have to do with beef and dairy, with swine and poultry manure is um, making sure that the manure storages are not just open off gassing into the atmosphere, but we should think about capping, capping those and capturing the gases that normally would go into the air, not just to trap biogas, methane, but also to reduce nuisances, because that is something that makes um, poultry and swine producers as well as dairy producers uh, oftentimes liable to lawsuits, like nuisance lawsuits around odors and flies. Yeah, I've um, I've read some some books about some of those huge lawsuits and so forth from from that, and that's and that's big. I mean, I remember living in an area that the dairies weren't too far away, and I could go out and sit in my hot tub in the evening, and and the wind comes the right direction, and I never did mind the smell, but there was there was definitely an odor the company would notice once in a while. Um, mm -hmm. But um, like I say, it didn't didn't bother me that much. It's really, it's really fascinating. Now, the other thing I want to go back to that when I have talked to you before, that I thought a point that, that that really stuck with me was what I referred to as Tesla cows, uh, because when people just would make general statements about cattle in general, I thought, well, it's kind of like making general statements about automobiles. There's Teslas, and then there's gas guzzlers, and then there's different implications. And you were talking about what I called was the kind of the, the Tesla cows. Now, you know, you've taken it a step up this morning. So people that are listening to our conversation, uh, drawing attention to the role of potential role of genetics. Because I think that many of these dairy farms, they actually have catalogs that you can kind of look up the bull that uh, you'll be using the semen to artificially inseminate and then possibly get a uh, hopefully get a heifer out of out of that match uh, that will grow up and will have some of these genes in it that apparently can can use um, be more efficient and produce less methane. That now that's a new one, Frank. A new one to me. It may not be to dairy farmers, but sure, a new one to me. Yeah, it is relatively new. This is um, a new tool in the toolbox of our dairy farmers because uh, we have figured out which trait that we routinely measure is a predictor for enteric methane. And we can test um, whether or not a cow is a high or low producer, and then we can uh, breed accordingly and thus have permanent changes in the methane formation of an entire herd. Of an entire herd, I and mean, we're talking about 
substantive reductions around 20, 30% of the entire herd of a state or country. Uh, and that's very meaningful. This is uh, not just a, a future concept. This is something that's already available. The question now is, will there be um, political, is there the political will? Um, will there be incentives for farmers to use it? Will there be policy signals, uh, for example, by releasing carbon credits and so on to those farms that take on this extra expense in order to um, make these reductions happen? If there were that trend, which is, which we see in here in California, uh, of enumerating reductions um, of methane from livestock, then farmers will respond and swiftly so. Now, would this be using genetic engineering or CRISPR no. or something? No. no, this is this is pre-CRISPR. This is just breeding. This is just um, this is just like the old the good old EPG. Uh, expected progeny differences, EPD, um, that will be out there for, for methane, like it was for scrotal circumference and other, uh, parameters in the past. So let's go back to these, go back to the dairies now, because dairies need to have, cows need to have calves, and it's part of the milk process that, um, that they need to be having calves. And, and oftentimes, if those calves are heifers, they'll like to raise them up so they can produce cows. That, uh, but the the bull calves, you only need so many bulls. Many of those go on into feedlots and are grown, and they become beef. So when you when you look at this at this cycle of of beef that has a large percentage of beef, certainly out here that has dairy blood in them because of this of this process. You know, where does this apply to the to feedlots? Because feedlots oftentimes in, in in are in dry lots, and 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 I don't think of them as utilizing lagoons. Although I know there are some that probably do, uh, but they're usually on open open dry lots. What is, what's done at that level to be able to reduce the mm -hmm. methane production? So first of all, it is true that the bull calves uh, from the dairy industry largely end up in feedlots. And um, indeed, their quality, their meat quality, rivals that of beef breeds, which uh, which was very surprising to many. Um, so this is a valued part of the total beef supply chain now. Uh, if you go to California, you look at all our feedlots, I would say 90%, 9-0, have black and whites in them. Uh, more and more often, dairies now breed beef on dairy. And this is a new thing that is going big. Um, and it's intended to further increase uh, the value of these animals when going into the beef supply chain. Um, so, but your question was, your main question was around manure management of feedlots. So feedlots, are, just to give you an idea, in the entire United States, we have 750,000 ranches with 50 mama cows on average, 750,000, and we have 1,400 feedlots where the animals are finished and where they spent the last four to six months of their lives. In the feedlots, beef cattle or all those animals that are raised are on a concentrate diet with about 80 to 90% concentrate in the ration and 10 to 20% roughage. Now, the reason why I mention this is because enteric methane 
is driven by roughage. The more roughage or fiber there is in the diet, the more methane the animal belches. In feedlots, the roughage content is low. And because of that, the methane is low. The enteric methane is low. Actually, if you think of the entire beef supply chain from cradle to grave, uh, including everything from mama cows to stockers to feedlots and so on, the lowest uh, contributor is the feedlots. And not, uh, and that's contrary to what people believe because they see cramped conditions and think that must be a major source for methane. It's really not. And not just is it not the lowest from an enteric perspective, but also from a manure perspective because the feedlots house the cattle in dry lot corrals, as you indicated. And that means the manure falling off those animals falls onto dirt floored corrals, is exposed to oxygen, and because of that, not undergoing methanogenesis. There's very little methane coming from feedlot corrals. The manure that falls off those animals dries out, uh, decomposes, the carbon goes into CO2, not into methane. And after about uh, four months of being in the corral, the animals are then finished, leave the corral, and afterwards the corral is scraped. And then that scrap manure is piled up and composted and eventually land applied as fertilizer for, in the most, in most cases, organic uh, crop production. Now that's, that's really interesting too. So if some calves that are coming from a dairy farm that could be bull cows that uh, are castrated, they become steers and they're put into a feedlot, but some of them go out to be pasture raised and, and, eventually marketed as grass-fed. So in that circumstance where they're not getting as much of the kind of energy like corn and uh, so forth that's in a feedlot, is their methane production actually higher than it would have been had they gone to a feedlot? Yeah, so the majority of beef animals in the United States are not black and white. The majority of beef animals throughout the country a crossbred of Boss Taurus and Boss Indicus breed origin. Um, so you have all these crosses of, of black-headed animals, uh, you know, Angus and, and, uh, and then you have a lot of Herefords and so on and, and crosses. So all of these beef animals that are in our beef supply chain spend approximately two thirds of their lives on pasture and the last third of their lives in feedlots to be finished. Mm-hmm. So let's say a, a corn-finished animal, corn-finished beef animal uh, versus a grass-finished beef animal uh, were to be compared. Then here's how that pencils out. The corn-finished animal is on pasture with its mama cow for the first couple of months until the animal is about 400 pounds heavy. Then it's weaned off its mom and it stays on pasture until it's about 700 pounds. And then it leaves the pasture, it leaves the ranch, and goes into a feedlot until it weighs about twelve to 1,300 pounds. And that last step, the feedlot step, takes about four months. The first step takes approximately 10 months. So when the animal, the feedlot finished, the corn finished animal, hits the packing plant, it's about 14, one, four, 14 to 16 months of age. So that's the corn-finished animal. Now let's go to the grass-finished animal. That animal stays on pasture its, its entire, entire life. And uh, that entire life 
uh, takes anywhere between 26 to 30 months of age. So it's 14 months to 16 months in the feedlot. It's 28 to 30 months in the um, in on the ranch. So that's a significant difference in lifespan of the corn finished versus grass finished animal. And that has an impact on lifetime emissions. Because if you live almost twice as long, then that means you eat more, you drink more, you emit more and so forth. Now that's one part of the difference. The other part of the difference is that the animal that's grass finished only eats a roughage intense diet its entire life. And roughage is what drives enteric methane. Because of what I just said, the shorter lifespan of the corn finished animals and the fact that they are fed a high concentrate diet for the last four months makes the corn finished animal have a one third lower carbon footprint than the grass finished animals. Even if you consider the fact that the corn finished animals are, of course, fat corn or distillers grains that have to be grown someplace, transported to the feedlots and so forth. If you consider cradle to grave of the one versus the other, then still the corn finished animal has a lower and not a higher carbon footprint. And that is contrary to public belief. You know, I understand what you just described from the methane side. I, I, I want to ask you another about the carbon side, because like you say, if this all starts off with the process that somebody is uh, planting corn in, in Illinois, and mm -hmm. uh, buying the tractors and the trucks and everything else to produce mm -hmm. the feed and then truck it to California or Texas or Nebraska. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. That seems like that's that's going to be a carbon footprint, even though that it's, it's offset maybe by the methane progress. Yeah, no, what I was referring to was not methane. What I was referring to was oh, the carbon okay. footprint. Okay, the assessed, assessed using what's called a life cycle assessment. A life cycle assessment refers to a cradle to grave assessment of all greenhouse gas related inputs. So that tractor and the gas it burns, uh, the plant protection agents that are being used and all of that is included. If I'm, if I'm becoming convinced now that say I want to become a rancher and uh, or farmer, um, how difficult is it for an individual farmer to, um, plot uh their own footprint to to be able to even make a claim uh about carbon or uh, uh i understand the difference but you've explained between methane and, and looking at the overall carbon but still if you just want to do it uh i don't even know where to start like i'd say well i've got a hundred cows and i i guess this and this and this about the cows and add it all up yeah, the, the trouble is that we are currently experiencing a Wild West atmosphere in the carbon arena, okay? There are hundreds of different ways of calculating uh, one's footprint, and there is no harmonization, and that makes everything super complicated. It is almost like, just imagine the following situation. Imagine all the different car manufacturers that are on the market using their own standard for measuring speed. Their odometers not being harmonized and standardized, but uh, Ford having a different way of quantifying speed than GMC and Chrysler and Mercedes and BMW. Everybody measures speed differently so that um, once people think they adhere to the speed limit, because there are signs everywhere, 
many of them indeed don't. Either drive way too fast or way too slow. And every be behind every tree is 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 a cop waiting for you. Okay, that would be a disaster. That would be a disaster, and everybody gets that. That disaster is happening right now in the carbon arena, where we have so many different schemes and models and tools to measure carbon emissions, and that means not just methane, but nitrous oxide, CO two. Um, there are different. Um, boundaries, and that refers to where the farm starts and where it ends. Should you, for example, include the production of the tractor that you're using and the production of the gasoline or diesel that you're burning? Or should that be attributed to somebody else uh, who produced that tractor or that gasoline or diesel? Should the consumer eating your product should that consumer be included in the carbon footprint of your product? Or should that carbon footprint end when it leaves your farm? All of these questions are questions that have to be addressed when you calculate the carbon or environmental footprint of a product. And, um, and harmonization of that is urgently needed because there are so many pressures that are now on farmers to know what their footprints are and how they have improved. Uh, so I'm working very hard, and colleagues of mine do as well, to achieve a harmonization internationally so that we all measure apples and apples and not apples and everything else. That's got to be a big job. And I know that you travel in all of the right circles and have been on advisory groups and you've spoken to international groups and so forth. So I, I wish you best in that endeavor. But uh, it's it's very, very daunting. Uh, and I think it's one of the reasons, though, too, that people, it seems like the public goes back to this broad generalization of things like, well, we just need to have like meatless April or something. You know, it's kind of like meatless Monday's not enough. And you try to press anybody on why they feel that way. And it's hard. And even your, you know, your own system has more and more pressure from students, for example, that are at the various UC campuses that feel like they want to eat meatless and say, well, why? Well, because it just helps the environment. Uh, so the default setting is some broad, general sort of all meats bad or something like that, because it's so difficult to, to you know, break it down and, and have it people sit down and spend an, an hour with Frank, because I wish they all could. Well, uh, I understand where this perception comes from, but uh, overall, I don't think the perception is true. Um, the perception comes from the fact that the anti-folks, the people who are against animal agriculture and against animal-sourced foods, are extremely vocal, and they have the ears of leading folks within the mass media out um, um, networks. Um, and that's why we hear about this all the time. Uh, two years ago, uh, the news beat was that we are seeing a drastic increase in plant-based alternatives to meat and to milk, and that in the near future, we will not see milk and meat and other animal source foods coming from animals, but from plants or from some kind of cell-based approach, right? That was two years ago. Yep. Take a look at all the different dogs of the Beyond Meats, of the Oatly milk alternatives, and so on. Take a look at where they're going. They are tanking as we speak. 
And um, all of a sudden, the news beat is, uh, has the vegan bubble burst? Uh, what's going on with uh, plant-based alternatives? Why are they tanking? They are tanking. This is not um, wishful thinking of a Frank Mittlerner. Uh, I don't really care what people eat at all. I really don't. Um, but this is this is a fact. And so, uh, what you are what you are saying that um, people say, well, let's just forego meat and other animal source foods a whole month, a year, or one day a week or so, is something that the activists want the public to believe as being a new um, a new mass phenomenon when indeed it is the drumbeat of a few activists uh, that is being tooted out there by some of the leading uh, news outlets and uh, i want to just give you one more statistics that i found very insightful in 97 percent of all american refrigerators nine seven that is in 97 percent of all american refrigerators you find animal source foods eggs, dairy, meat, and in 3%, you don't. So uh, we keep hearing that the end of animal source foods is near. Um, it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, Frank, that's a really, really important point you're making there. And, and you know, it, I remember back when there was so much pressure on, on beef as far as cholesterol was concerned. <laughs> and and when you look at they created the McLean Deluxe, I don't know how many people would even remember that, but it also flamed out. It it just it just really collapsed, and everybody said, "Thank goodness we've got a a low cholesterol, low saturated fat beef sandwich," and it, it didn't sell. And I remember some people dissecting, well, how did this come to be? How did we make such a mistake? And they literally went back and found like uh, social events and cocktail hours and so forth that that families of the people making the decisions just said, well, everybody's doing this. Everybody's concerned. Everybody wants mm -hmm. to, to change the, the consumption. And it was persuasive in companies like McDonald's. To mm -hmm. go out and spend millions of dollars trying to promote McLean Deluxe, but people didn't want it. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I will tell you a little anecdote from my own family. My father passed away five years ago at age 87. Um, but 30 years before he passed away, he had a heart attack, a serious one, and he almost died. And afterwards, his doctors told him, you must stop eating eggs. No more eggs for you. And my mother went through so much uh, work to avoid putting eggs into all the food that she cooked so so deliciously um, to protect my father's health. And that poor guy didn't eat eggs for 30 years. And that was because at the time, the news were full of, you know, eggs contain cholesterol, cholesterol leads to heart attack, um, and everybody believed it. And then after all these years, somebody actually did a study, a real study, um, where people ate either no eggs or one egg a week or three eggs a week or five eggs a week or 10 eggs a week. And then they actually measured blood cholesterol in the different treatment groups. And they found no significant differences across treatment groups. And everybody scratched their heads and wondered, well, how is that possible? We have a drastic difference in, in egg consumption across these groups, but they don't differ in blood cholesterol. How is that possible? And 
what it all boils down to is that it is not so much the dietary cholesterol that leads to blood cholesterol, but it is the genetic predisposition. There are people that are high cholesterol people. They just have a higher cholesterol level. And if they do, then they should do something to reduce that because it does indeed affect the risk of heart attack and other cardiovascular diseases. But what we eat has a very minor impact on blood cholesterol. And it took them 30 years to figure that out. And uh, I keep thinking of my poor father and his egg consumption. And I know this is not going to happen to me. Well, it's too bad. I mean, that that's a whole industry that had a huge setback from that time. And now I pay some attention to what I'm eating. And uh, the advice is, you know, eggs are awfully important. They're back. And yep. you should be in, in, enjoying them, and it's it is one of those one of those challenges. And that, Frank, that leads to what's a consumer to do? I mean, you know, we you know, you walk through the grocery store right now, and the real estate on the packaging is just covered with uh, claims about sustainability and and so forth. How are mm -hmm. we to take that? How are we to take those those communications as a as a consumer? Uh, because you can't escape it any longer. I, I, I dare you to go down any aisle in the grocery store and not find quite uh, quite a bit that you could pick up the package and look at the label and it's making one claim or another related to sustainability, climate change, carbon neutral, something or other. It's, it's all over the place. What should we do? Yeah, I think there's a whole lot of greenwashing going on. A whole lot of greenwashing going on. Um, a colleague of mine, uh, did a study looking at the carbon footprint of eggs. And she compared the Walmart egg, the egg you buy at Walmart, versus the egg you buy at the local farmer, versus the egg you buy at the farmer's market, and so on. So she went through five or six different channels of where you can buy your eggs and, and, and so forth. And then the carbon footprint. And what she found was that by far the lowest carbon footprint egg was the one you buy at Walmart. Why? Because of economy of scale. That's why. Because these super big farms, and I'm not a big fan of those either, but they are the most efficient. And they transport these eggs in enormous semi-trucks to the supermarkets that sell tens of thousands of those things. And, uh, and therefore, the entire footprint of transportation, of production, of retail and so on, has such an economy of scale that the environmental footprint per unit of egg is very small. The highest carbon footprint, believe it or not, was the one of the egg that you buy at a dairy, uh, sorry, at a, at a farm uh, that you drive to that might be 10 miles away or further from your home. Because yeah. now the gas you burn, uh, for example, is in addition to the production of the egg. And if you add all of that up, then the transportation uh, costs, environmental costs, that is, per egg are the highest and not the lowest. The same is true with the farmer's uh, market egg. Because they sell so few, relatively speaking, uh, you know, driving to the farmer's market of the person doing it, and then you driving there uh, as well, all of that amounts to a significant uh, um uh, environmental cost of that. Now, that doesn't mean at all that I don't like farmer's market. I love farmer's market. I love interacting with farmers and so on. But these claims 
that you hear in supermarkets around the environmental footprint are just, uh, in many cases, are just greenwashing. What I recommend to people um, with respect to food choices is buy real foods, learn how to cook, cook real food, and don't buy ultra-processed stuff because that, by and large, is not good for you because it contains too much salt, too much all kinds of um, of of ingredients that are really not helpful. Yeah, well, th that's great advice. And I'm looking forward to the day that I can go to the farmer's market. When I go to somebody that's doing grass-fed programs, maybe I'll hear that they're trying out some of the new genetics, too, that... Uh, that are out there grazing and that it brings up one other thing we've talked a lot about livestock but um and but when you look at the focus on plant-based currently and everybody's plant-based this and plant-based that well everything's plant-based i mean the, the the livestock are plant-based and what they're what they're what they're eating and and so forth but i think you pointed out on your website i believe it was like that only 1.8 percent of um of the land and on the earth is really suitable for growing things other than just the cellulose and the pastures did i get that right um some reason that 1.8 percent sticks sticks in my mind so if you think of all agricultural land in the world hmm. um as well let me give you a little depiction here. imagine a normal regular sheet of paper okay and that sheet of paper being the surface of the entire earth. Um, and now you think of a postcard sized piece of paper. Yes. Uh, the postcard is all the land in the world. Okay. The difference between the whole sheet versus the postcard is water and ice. And now think of, so the, the postcard sized piece of land is all land in the world. If you now take a business card, like you just did a business card, uh, then think of that business card as the total amount of land in the world that's agricultural. Okay, so the whole sheet is the whole world. The, the business card is all agricultural land in the world. If you now fold this, this business card into one piece that's two-thirds, the other piece that's one-third, then the two-piece, two-third piece of that business card is what we call marginal land and that's land that's not suitable to grow crops because it's too dry too hilly too rocky not uh, fertile enough or yeah. other reasons you cannot grow crops there that's two-thirds of all agricultural land now if you think of this one-third size piece of that business card one-third that is the arable land where you can grow crops and that is pretty alarming if you think about how little one-third of a business cut is in size. But that is how limited we are with respect to cropland we can use to grow crops for human and animal consumption. Now, if you think about this, and you literally take a business card and rip it into pieces, the two-thirds piece can only be used by ruminant livestock because they are the only ones who can make use of what grows there, which is cellulose-containing grasses. And uh, and that's it. Without ruminants, we could not make use of two-thirds of all agricultural land. And all of that is important considering the fact that we have a formidable challenge globally, which is that the human population is growing drastically. Yeah. Back in 1920, 
So 100 years ago, globe, the, the world had 2 billion people. Today, we are at 8 billion. We have quadrupled, quadrupled human population in 100 years. We have quadrupled human population in 100 years. And throughout my lifetime, and I'm a little over 50, throughout my lifetime, human population has tripled. We must think about how we grow food for a tripling human population in one person's lifetime without ruining all natural resources. And that means we must use the best efficiency we know of and empower our farmers to make the best use of the land they have and work with these farmers and not against them. I've been raked over the coals by people who think that I'm pro-agriculture. We all should be pro-agriculture, just like we are pro-health, uh, supporting doctors and nurses. We need to be pro-food and support our farmers. Yeah, it's crazy, because if you think about, uh, you want to be pro-health, for example, but you can't be pro-health if you decided, for example, to get rid of uh, 80% of the hospitals, you know, or, you right. know, I mean, uh, so you tie it back to what are the areas that's necessary to produce food, and this food can only come in the form of cellulose, which can only be converted uh, by ruminants. Uh, and let's forgo that and just ignore the fact that we're going to have so many billions more people eventually. That's crazy. It's a complex story, and nobody tells it better than you do, Frank. And I really appreciate your getting on the podcast with me because I, every once in a while, I just need to have my Frank conversation myself, <laughs> and I'm happy to share it with only thousands of people listening to to you in this podcast from really, I think all over the, all over the world. I want to go back to one thing before we wrap up though, too, because it's real stuck with me. It was a, it was a new thought today. And that was thinking of these kind of covered lagoons as I would a ruminant stomach and that what the microbes are doing there, doing their job, really. It's, it's, it's a fabulous thing. That's another whole thing. We need to connect with the, the microbes and, and what they're doing to try to help us along, too. But I've still got that clearly in my mind. I see this. I, I picture this, this, <laughs> this stomach effect. When you cover these lagoons that are catching all of the manure and convert them to, uh, to methane, uh, is there a lot of machinery involved? I know, I know we could do a whole new podcast just on that, but just in that process of taking it from, uh, from this lagoon and converting it into something that could be used on the farm and the trucks or the tractors of, of, of the farm. Uh, what's the maybe simple picture of that? If you could give us, I, I know it's a subject for another one. We could get into a great deal of detail, but then help me, help me understand that. So conceptually, a digester is a very simple um, technology. Uh, in a country like India, you have millions of digesters. In fact, many households have their own digester. What they do is they take a barrel, a 50-gallon barrel, and they put the food waste they have and other waste they produce in their households into this barrel. They cover the barrel, and guess what happens? Those methanogens produce methane gas. And they take this methane gas and use it for cooking. That's an anaerobic digester that they are using, okay? At the household level, millions of them all over India. In Germany, there are about close to 10,000 anaerobic digesters on farms, the size of those that we see in the United States. 
In the United States, we now have about 300 of these digesters. Again, in Germany, much smaller country, 10,000. Um, so it's relatively new here uh, with respect to uh, how broadly it is used, um, but it is being used, and uh, particularly here in California, where we now have a law that mandates strong methane reductions of 40%. So our farmers are now covering their lagoons, and that's really it. Uh, that's all you do. You cover it. There's no moving part inside the lagoon. And uh, once you do cover it, then those microbes that produce the methane will automatically multiply. And drastically so, they will take um, the volatile solids, they are called, and they convert them into methane gas. And that methane gas is flammable. It's energy, as I said before, and can be either burned and made into power, and that used to be a thing. Now it's no longer the big thing. But um, what people do now is they take the biogas, 60% of which is methane, 40% is not. They clean the biogas up, and that's really the, uh, the process that's more involved, the cleaning process of this gas. They clean the gas up, make it into renewable natural gas, and that is a fuel for vehicles to be used. So renewable natural gas is like the gas that you use to warm your house or uh, or cook your meals or uh, run trucks, trucks and buses. Um, so it is a technology that's now well established. It works under our conditions here in California, here in the United States. Um, and it helps us to circumvent uh, pollution issues and nuisance issues. And that's why I'm bullish about it. Because it can make our farmers be part not just of a climate solution, but it also makes them better neighbors. Because it takes out some of the uh, negative aspects of animal agriculture, uh, some of which you alluded to um, when, when odors develop or flies or dust or so. A lot of that can be circumvented. Now, does it stay in gas form or is it ever liquefied? It stays in gas form. Okay, so you said in gas form. Now, one other thing related to this that you, I heard you say earlier, and that is that you're we're talking about really global warming. You were you were differentiating. I come I have you repeated because I'm not sure if I got it exactly right. But you were talking about it's less of focusing on carbon, but as far as the more of global warming and 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 reduction of heat that this that this process. That, that was yeah, intriguing yeah. too, Frank, because there was there was a time where global warming was the emphasis, and then there was a public relations campaign that succeeded in renaming it the climate change because it looked like that was going to be more favorable. So when it comes to greenhouse gases, we don't care about carbon equivalents. We care about the impact these gases have on actual warming. And um, what's really almost miraculous is that if we address methane, if we reduce methane, then not just will we have less warming, but we will reduce warming. We will net reduce warming, and that means we can become part of a climate solution. If you have interest in finding out more, you can go to our Clear Center webpage, which is clear.ucdavis.edu. There you find explainers on various topics, for example, what is carbon sequestration? How does livestock affect the climate? 
many other environmental and welfare issues, you find blogs, you find YouTube videos and so forth. And, uh, and I really encourage people uh, to visit us. If you have any questions, please, please reach out to us. We are, we are always happy to help. Well, Frank Mitlerner, I'll tell you what, I'm going to be reaching out to you again sometime. And you've done us a favor once again on Farm to Table Talk. I appreciate this conversation. And like I said, I know that I've got lots of people listening today that uh, are glad you're helping them along, too. Maybe they're going to be a little different than our own parents that felt they had to forego eggs, for example, among other great things they can learn. So I want to thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson.